0: And for some odd reason, best known to Dundee Council, they don't consider it worthy of gritters or salt distributors. So it's been quite fun looking out of the window and watching uh, various vehicles attempting to get up the slope. And they come to a point where you see the wheels beginning to spin. Uh, People try different techniques. Uh, Some of them get a little further than others, but at the end of the day, they don't get up. And the obvious thing is that uh, they're out of control. They just can't make it. And you can see them scratching their heads, sitting there for a while, trying again, and coming to the same conclusion. There's a total sense of helplessness. You know, there are many things in life like that over which we find we just don't have any control. We don't have any choice in the matter. We can't really control what people say about us or think about us. We certainly can't control the economy, uh, nor can certain other people. And we can't control the weather. But I believe there is one thing that we can control. That's our integrity. Life has got its stresses and Integrity will face every kind of pressure in life, but ultimately, we're responsible for that heart of our being where there ought to be honesty and truth, integrity. You know, that word integrity comes, I believe, from the same word from which we get the word integer. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I believe it means a whole number that you can't divide. Is that right? There's a qualified accountant sitting there with a quizzical look on his face. (laughs) But it's something that can't be divided. And integrity is something that can't be divided. Integrity is not something you show when you're here in the chaplaincy center on a Sunday morning. And then on Monday morning it disappears. It's not something we leave behind when we go to work. It's that testimony of life that speaks louder than words and if it's not there it destroys our witness. It means doing what is right even if what is right is not necessarily the same thing as doing what is expedient. It's having a principle-centered life, it's having a set of core values a consistent framework of principles, and you make up your mind that you will operate within those core values, no matter what. You know, in Scripture, David is often quoted to us as an example of someone who did operate according to a framework of core values. He was a man of integrity. Psalm 78, 72 says when it's seeing God's hand on Israel it says that God chose David from amongst the sheep pens to shepherd his people Jacob and it says David shepherded them how? he shepherded them with integrity of heart isn't that what we long for in our politicians men of conviction who can shepherd us as a nation out of the integrity of their hearts. I think it's significant that when Samuel, who of course had chosen Saul who was head and shoulders, went to choose Saul's successor, and he saw the sons of Jezeb and Eliab came before him, a man who was of good stature, that the Lord said to him, don't consider his appearance, Or the appearance of his height. I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that's what God saw in David a heart that was true and honest. And that it had integrity. So that when David in Psalm 7 refers to all the attacks on his life by Saul. He can say, judge me, O Lord, according to my integrity. Well, the bankers and the politicians show some shattering evidence that integrity is not a common virtue in our land. I don't know if you heard the news the other day about insurance claims one in five is reckoned to be fraudulent a little while back I had I was going to say the opportunity I had the duty of acting as an executor for a will and when I dealt with the lawyer I was quite amazed at the way that he suspected everything that I did and I thought to myself does he not know that I operate on a different framework that I'm answerable to the Lord and obviously he didn't the happy thing is that after a year of working with him I think he began to trust me (laughs) integrity means truth in the heart honesty at the very center of our lives and it was the very thing that David tripped up on wasn't it over Bathsheba and the very thing that Plagued him as he got down on his knees in Psalm 51 and he realized, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And of course, it's only in great David's greater son that we see that true integrity. But he was a man who had a heart for God. And I find that in the story in Engedi, We've got a wonderful example of how he operated according to that integrity. When you think about it, the pressure for him to compromise his principles at that particular moment when Saul appears there in the mouthway of the cave must have been incredibly strong. The cave itself is high up on the western bank of the Dead Sea in the limestone crags near Masada and Qumran. And as I was saying to the children, I believe that there's one of those caves, they say you can get 30,000 people in it. So it was a big place, and the shepherds used to use those caves, and to this day they have little piles of stones around the mouth of the caves, made into semicircular walls, covered with sharp thorns, and they, they put their sheep in the sheep pens. The name Engedi means spring of the goat, and it refers to a particular freshwater spring, and there are several others in this particular area that run down into the Dead Sea. And it transforms that area around Engedi into a very fertile oasis. We've got clues to that in Scripture. In the Song of Solomon, if you know it, it says, My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. I don't know if any of you sent that in a Valentine's card yesterday or whether that would have mystified some but the reason why they could say that was of course it was a fertile place such a fertile place that in the days of the crusades I gather that they said the best vineyards were to be found at Engedi and the Greeks and the Romans loved Engedi because they got a special kind of resin balsam from the trees so it was an ideal place with its fruit trees and with all its uh, luxury outside the caves it was a kind of natural supermarket from which David and his outlaws could sustain. Now as we were saying to the children if you're a budding troglodyte you would know that uh, it was a very good place to spy out on the country round about and a very bad place to go into when you didn't know what was coming in and Saul with his eyes unaccustomed to the dark would have not been able to see David and his men hiding at the back of the cave He says he came in to relieve himself, or as our good American friends might say, he was taking a comfort break. Or as we would say, he was having a Kit Kat. Uh, And there he was, perhaps he had 40 winks. Terribly vulnerable. Extraordinarily vulnerable. And unknowingly, he was cast on David's mercy. What's perhaps not quite so easy to realize is that he was not the only one who was vulnerable. His vulnerability was external, it was physical. David's vulnerability was spiritual. And he was even more vulnerable in that sense. He was being tested to the limit. Those core principles that he held to, that truth in the inward being was being put to the test. He knew that the throne of Israel had been promised to him. And he must have been sorely tempted to have taken matters into his own hands to grasp the crown rather than trust God to give him the crown. But if he had done so, would his ministry not have been compromised forever? I can imagine Jeeves in the morning getting up and saying, excuse me, sir, (coughs) Saul's just popped into the cave. And by the way, he's got his back to you. Here's your cup of tea. And to back it up, then the prophetic word from his friends in the cave verse 4 says it here is the day which the Lord said to you behold I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you the devil can cite scripture to his purpose it's hard isn't it when you confront a situation where it seems that the outcome is right but the means of achieving that outcome are dubious it's all very sincere. These men are all very spiritual. They're all very convincing. They probably, and they knew that they wanted what was best for David. They too were at, uh, at the mercy of Saul. David had been anointed. He'd been told that he was going to wear Saul's crown. He'd be promised that he would not be a victim of Saul's treachery. Surely this was the God-given opportunity to take matters into his own hands and to end that treachery at its source. And here's this spiritual word from his friends. The word of prophecy. In the words of the guy in the A-team, I love it when a plan comes together. Do you know that? Or is that before your time? Must have thought that. What a temptation. It's the kind of temptation that you never know where it will come from and when you may have to face it. nor in what guise it will be it can come suddenly and in the most plausible of guises but at heart it will be an attack on your integrity and it was a formidable temptation to resort to an expedient outcome but David emerges intact, why? what preserves his integrity? yes, the Lord preserves his integrity But apart from that, I think it was that he had his heart, he was a man after God's own heart. He had his heart set on God, not wrongly on his ambitions. If his heart had been more set on becoming number one, if he'd had visions of grandeur, of wearing the crown, then I suspect he would have severed Saul's head there and then. You see, we succumb to temptation when in those inner recesses of the heart, we have already entertained the possibility. And the only thing that we lack is the opportunity. The devil's a past master at providing the opportunity. When Jonah ran away from the word of the Lord, he goes down to Joppa, what does he find? There's a ship. Who provided the ship? I forget the commentator who said he went down to Joppa and found a ship. But he ended up paying the fare thereof. I don't think David allowed himself to think of grasping the crown. So that when the chance came he was not predisposed to act that way that inner truth kept him true. And then in the second instance he was a man who with a heart for God was sensitive to the way God worked. And he knew that God could be trusted. And I believe he drew back instinctively from what his friends were telling him to do. He knew instinctively that that throne was not something that he should grasp illegally. He didn't believe that the end Justified the means so he took the supposed word of the Lord from his friends and he laid it alongside his understanding of the word of God his promise and his ways and he took that word of God so seriously that he could turn round to his men and say and all the pressure they were putting on him when everything would have seemed to have been right to have killed Saul and Satan no that's not the way we do it verse 6 the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed even at this stage in his life he was so sensitive in his conscience that even taking the uh, metaphorical scissors and cutting off the bottom of his robe upset him wasn't quite so sensitive later on in life But he knew that to commit cold-blooded murder was not consistent with that framework of core values by which he operated. And as he says to Saul in verse 13, as the old saying goes, you've got nothing to fear from me, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And because he knew that Saul had been set apart and anointed for God for his ministry, he knew that the God who placed Saul upon the throne of Israel would in his own way and in his own time place David on that same throne. That anointing that David had received from the Lord, where it says that the Spirit of God was then upon him, was to him the sign and the seal of the promise of God. And he knew that the promises of God could be trusted. They would be fulfilled in God's time and in God's way. So that he could say to Saul there in verse 15. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. That he may vindicate me from your hand. Do you see the contrasting parallels here between David and Macbeth? I married Lady Macbeth I mean that was her maiden name, sorry Both were promised a crown, were they not? Albeit in very different manners What did Macbeth do? He took matters in his own hands With a little help from a certain lady And he grasped the crown And he lost the kingdom and his life and his wife David was promised the crown, but he left matters in God's hand, and he gained both the kingdom and his life. God had given his word to David, and God was at work, and he did not need David to engineer or work out the solution for him. That sadly, of course, was what Abraham and Sarah ended up doing, and we had Ishmael, which is why somebody said we pay so much for our oil. Never mind. Well, David's promised deliverance from Saul was not a license to kill. And his promise that one day he would rule the kingdom was no justification for stealing it illegally. And what David shows us in this is that God's work must be done in God's way if it is to lead to God's blessing. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to lead to God's blessing. And the way in which we do God's work Is every bit as important as the work that we do I repeat that, the way in which we do God's work Is every bit as important as the work that we do So he would do God's work, God's way And he would trust God for the outcome. Some commentator wrote, and I've scribbled it in my Bible, and I don't know who said it David was never more truly a king than when he refused to grasp the crown. Now let's just look a little more briefly at Saul. What a contrast! The word is not integrity for Saul, but duplicity. A total lack of truth in the inward being. He told himself one thing and then he did another. And he thought no one would ever know. In fact, you might say, this man placed so much judgment on the opinion and the value of other people about him... that he placed more emphasis on that than an assessment and judgment of his own heart, his own core principles. And the outcome of that eventually was that he no longer had any respect for himself. You see how that works? Because he had no real core values to respect. And that integrity that should have been there was replaced by insecurity. There was a vacuum at the very center of his heart and his being. And into that vacuum rushed the terrible twins of jealousy and envy. Jealousy, that fear of losing someone or something that you have. Envy, that longing for someone or something that you don't have coveting what somebody else has and the fear perhaps that you're not worth anything and that other people are more popular and of more value than you are what Jim Packer calls one of the most cancerous and soul destroying vices that there is or as Iago said to Othello the green eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. And ever since, Saul heard the women of Judah chanting, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. That green-eyed monster snuck into his life. And instead of examining that divided heart, instead of confessing his sin, instead of coming to the Lord, he looked at David and a corrosive acid of jealous envy poisoned his mind. David was no threat to his throne at that point. Saul had no reason to be jealous. He ought to have been thrilled that the God of Israel had raised up this man as his servant in order to destroy the Philistines. But instead, because he lacked that integrity in the inward being, into that hollow came jealousy. The green-eyed monster. Motivating what he did, festering, developing into a treacherous hatred, turning him into a treacherous villain, and ultimately destroying him. It seems to me that if I was to give a title, I asked David Robertson if he needed a title for today, and David said no, he didn't think he did. But I thought if there was a title, it would be Integrity and Duplicity because you've got this contrast between the two characters here so clear in this chapter 24 and one of the strangely moving things I find in chapter 24 is that this noble effect this noble behavior on David's part has an incredible effect on Saul look at it there in verse 16 David's waving his little piece of robe, and when David has finished his little speech, Saul says, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Did not God accept that man's tears? Should not God have reached down and delivered and saved Saul at that point? What are we to make of the tears? well there were tears just that crocodile tears maybe they lacked integrity that duplicity in Saul's life has been seen before in chapter 15 you remember the story there I'm sure that Samuel had come to Saul and said to him the word of the Lord came to Samuel and he said that uh, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned back from following me and he has not performed my commandments. Saul is told to go and destroy the Amalekites. And he sets out, but he doesn't do what he was told. And Samuel comes chasing after Saul in the same way that Nathan the prophet came chasing after David. It's very interesting when you look through scripture to see that when the saints of God sin, God takes the initiative to send his word through his prophet to bring them back to repentance. He sent Nathan to David and David repented. He sent Samuel to Saul and Saul didn't repent. That's the difference. In fact, poor Samuel couldn't find Saul, so where was Saul? Saul was up a mountain, erecting a monument to himself, like Kim Il Sung, or is that not to be said in public? Far cry from the shy little Saul who hid among the baggage on his coronation day. And God's commission for Saul, his charge that he might destroy the Amalekites, turned for him into an exercise of self-promotion. He saw a chance of getting something out of it, making a name for himself. And then there's the delightful scene, it's worth, worth somebody making a film out of this. Here, here comes Samuel. He might have been a bit old, but he had fire in his bones, and he comes up to Saul, and Saul gets all pious and gives him a spiritual hug, and he says, "Oh, bless you, Samuel, dear old Samuel. Yes, I've carried out the Lord's commands. Pious claptrap." Surprising sometimes how people coo the language of Zion without integrity. Samuel says, if you carried out the Lord's command, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What then is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And rather than repent, Saul is immediately on the defensive and he rationalizes and he he shifts the blame in verse 15 of that chapter. He says, well, you see, it's like this, the people, um, and he actually goes on to say he was afraid of the people and their opinion. Well, he said, the people that were with me, they they, they, they decided to spare the best of the sheep. Um, You know, we we, we really wanted to um, sacrifice to the Lord, your God, your God, he says. So we didn't destroy the rest of them. (coughs) Hogwash. And you've got God's reply back there in Chapter Fifteen, if I can find it. Verse twenty four. Or verse 17 even. Samuel says, you were once small in your eyes, you became, and didn't you become head of the tribes? The Lord anointed you king and he sent you on a mission, destroy all these wicked people. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Let me tell you what God has told you, he says. He says. I did obey the Lord, says Saul in verse 20. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and the cattle from the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is far better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. There's so much more there. Here was not a man who was a conviction politician. He did not treat the word of God seriously, so what do we make of his tears and why did God reject his tears that great bible commentary Matthew Henry commentator says it this way Saul had been convinced hence the tears but not converted convinced but not converted Conviction without conversion is a perversion. Conviction without repentance is self-deception. It's not the weeping that God looks for, it's the action. Repentance, that determination that with God's help you will turn around 180 degrees and go in the other direction. You will stop doing something you know you should not be doing. You will do what you know you should be doing. You see, tears may wet your cheeks, but tears alone won't change your path. With the voice of the prophet. It's not tears that God wants. It is tears. Rend your hearts. Not your garments. Rend your hearts. Not your garments. A decision to obey. And an act of the will. Is needed. With or without tears. Or it ends up in tears. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7:10 says this godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief Produces death and it was worldly grief worldly sorrow that gave rise to Saul's tears like the criminal who weeps because he's been found out that he has to pay the penalty for his crime and fired by jealousy and envy Saul feared his reputation and his appall. His uh, opinion poll rating—he feared that more than he feared God, and he knew it. And on that other occasion, when, in a very similar kind of incident, David takes the spear with Abishai, and the water jar, and he spares Saul's life once again, Paul stands up. The Saul stands up and says, "I have played the fool and erred exceedingly, but that was not repentance." It was words, not deeds. He was convicted, but not converted. And he went on playing the fool and erring exceedingly. There's an incredibly ironic scene at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Do you remember it? Saul has been in battle. He's leaning wounded on his spear, dying slowly. And he asks for help for someone to finish him off. And the ironic thing is that the one who finishes him off is the one that he ought to have finished off before. Because he cries out to the man and he says, Who are you? Back come the words, I am an Amalekite. Tragic. Well, the Bible is very honest, and of course, David wasn't exactly washed in luxe, was he? His sin against Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, and the way he tried to cover it all up was heinous. And yet, he doesn't suffer the same of fate as Saul. Because when he was confronted by the servant that the Lord sent to him, Nathan... Did he excuse himself? Did he blame anybody else? Did he say, you don't know what it's like to be king? You've got to take some slack. You've got to have a little time off. No, he showed that godly grief and that repentance that led to salvation without regret. And his immediate reaction to the word through the prophet Nathan, once it had sunk into his heart, was, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. Which is why in that Psalm 51 that we're going to sing in a moment, he cries out to God. My sin is ever before me. I know my transgression. Against you and against you only have I sinned. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You demand integrity. And I've screwed up. And is not just saying, Lord, I'm a bit of a sinner, you know. He says, Lord, deliver me from blood guiltiness. God, I'm a murderer. That's what I am. Someone was saying the other day that in cases of addiction, you get no deliverance until you come to that place of admitting that you're an addict. David does that. He says, God, I'm a murderer. That's what I am. I can't cover up. I have no right to this throne of Israel. And the outcome for these two men could not have been more different. Saul's tears counted for nothing because his heart was only full of excuses to rationalize away his disobedience. So the word of the Lord for Saul is judgment. David's heart is broken. And the Lord's word for him is forgiveness. The Lord has taken away your sin. Come back to what we said earlier. There are some things in life that you can't control. There are some things over which we have no choice. And life is not predictable. One thing that is certain for every single one of us here today is that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God from the oldest to the youngest all of us stand convicted and all of us have a choice as to what we do about it will we like Saul walk out of this chaplaincy center this morning convicted but not converted will we shed tears even but do little more than take out a hanky. Worldly grief, the grief that ends the way it started, in tears, and produces death and regret. Or will we, like David, be convicted, but converted? Godly grief, That grief that, with or without tears, sets us off on a new course for our life in following the Lord Jesus. The way of repentance that turns us around in a new direction. The way of integrity. The way of truth in the inward being. The way that leads to salvation without regret. Let's pray.